Hi, this is Lisa McLeod. I'm the author of Selling with Noble Purpose, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. Joining me today is Lisa McLeod. Lisa is the global expert on purpose-driven business and has spent two decades helping leaders increase competitive differentiation and emotional engagement. She developed the Noble Purpose methodology after her research revealed salespeople who sell with noble purpose outsell salespeople who focus on targets and quotas alone. Lisa is a former Procter and Gamble sales leader who founded her own firm, McLeod & Moore, in 2001. She works with leaders of organizations like Cisco, Roche, Volvo, Dave & Buster's, and others that drive exponential revenue growth. And she's also the author of five best-selling books. Lisa is here now to talk about her book, Selling with Noble Purpose, which is being released for the second edition. Welcome, Lisa. It's great to be with you today, Bill. It's great to have you on the show. Say, Lisa, one thing I love to hear from people who are high performers and who really create new thoughts and ideas in the industry is when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? Well, I know that this is might seem like a trite answer because a lot of people would say this, but it's actually my dad. And one of the things that I didn't understand at the time as a young child was my dad was a guy who loved his job. He worked for a bank and then later he worked for the FS, FDIC and he believed that his work was making a difference. And what I didn't realize as a child is everybody does not feel that way about their job. And so he really said into me, work should be fun. Work should matter. Your work should make a difference. And that became part of my core belief system. That's terrific. And I say that because my father didn't get to work in the area that he loved, which would have been to work as a forest ranger, I think, because he loved nature and loved the outdoors and was a biology major. When he graduated, and started a family, he found that it was much easier to get a job as a chemist. So he worked his whole career as a chemist indoors in a laboratory when his real love would have been to be outdoors in the woods and surrounded by nature. So he was a great counterexample to me about how important it is to choose work that excites you every day. Yeah, I had my mother was a school teacher who wanted to be a doctor. And I think and she was not as happy with her job. But the thing that I took from my dad that I didn't realize I was absorbing from a really young age was not just that you should choose work that excites you, because I, I was also heavily influenced by Mary Tyler Moore, and I thought I was going to have her job one day. But the thing that I took away from him was not just choose the conditions that excite you, but connect the dots about how your work makes a difference. Because my dad would always come home and tell us about this business that got this loan and how exciting it was when he worked for the government. He would say, during the SNL crisis, he would say, oh, we're saving these banks from failing. It was always about the impact that the work had. And I didn't realize that that was kind of a unique orientation that he was seeding in me. Lisa, do you remember a time when 
that message or that feeling from the example of your father made a difference in the decision that you made either earlier in your career or maybe later on. But you could actually tie it back and say, oh my gosh, my, my father was really speaking to me at that moment. About 10 years ago during the recession, we had a business. I had been a sales consultant and had my business for the last 20 years. But about 10 years ago, my husband owned a small manufacturing company. And during the recession, it went belly up, as a lot of these companies did. It was assigned companies tied to commercial construction. And what happened for me was we business went belly up, taking most of our money with it. And we were on the hook for a lot of it and had to declare bankruptcy. And it was horrible. You know, it's one thing to be broke in your 20s, but to be broke in your 40s when you've got kids about to go to college, it was terrible. And so what that did was that put a lot of pressure on me to step into this role of the sole earner because he was dealing with this whole thing going bankrupt. And so where I really thought about was, how do I want to grow my business? Because at the time I was a consultant, I had a pretty good business, I was making, I'll be candid, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. But now all of a sudden I owe the IRS a couple hundred thousand dollars. I had to figure out a way to make more money. And I thought, well, I could run out there and run around and just try and make a bunch of money, or I can do this in a way where I'm going to be really proud of the business I created and how I made a difference to other people. And that was really the voice of my childhood coming back and saying, you don't want to just show up for work in this transactional way. You want to show up in a way that is both benefiting other people and also benefiting yourself. And so that really guided me at that time. I just want to highlight that because I think that's a choice point that many people face in different levels of intensity in their lives. And to bring in that part about, I don't want this to just to be about the transactions or solving a financial problem or paying off a debt, but how can I re-envision what I do? How can I strategically engage where I could still make a contribution, make a big impact, make a profitable income, and also feel better about myself? That was a real game changer, I imagine, for you, wasn't it? It absolutely was a game changer because what happens in that moment, we tend to, in our society, create this false dichotomy between making money and making a difference. And making money is all these you know, salespeople out there hustling it up who don't care about anything. And making a difference is for social workers and doctors and people like that. But nothing could be further from the truth. What happened was, as I wanted to solve this problem for myself, I started solving it for other people. And the research tells us that people who sell with what we call noble purpose, who truly want to make a difference to their customers, actually sell more than people who are just focused on their own targets and quotas. So let's back up a little bit because I'm interested in how you made the switch from a corporate executive to becoming a small business owner. When you were working at Procter & Gamble, what was it that was going on in your mind? Did you see an opportunity? What led to the decision to go out and begin a business on your own? Well, there are actually two decisions. I left Procter & Gamble, and which is a great company. I left them to join a small consulting firm. And a moment happened to me during the interview where my boss said, what's interesting is I just had wrote a piece for Forbes when I was talking with John Scully, former CEO of Apple. And apparently he faced the exact same conversation that I had, my little 25-year-old mid-manager self, which was when Steve Jobs said to him, hey, we're changing the world over here. Do you want to just continue to sell sodas or do you want to change the world? It was the exact same conversation my boss had with me to join this small consulting firm, which was 
we're changing the way people sell. We're changing the way people lead. Do you want to be part of that? And I went, sign me up. So that's how I left a big company. How I started on my own, I decided to be really honest about this. A lot of people start their own company because they see some great opportunity. They want to capture the market. I'm going to be quite candid. The reason I started my own consulting firm is because I was a VP of sales who was on the road 70 hours a week and I had a baby and I didn't want to be on the road 70 hours a week and I knew I could help companies. So I decided to start my own company and do it on my own terms. I know a lot of people can relate to that frustration of feeling trapped in a role, being very successful and saying there has to be a different way. And you found the courage and the resources to make that a successful consulting company. So congratulations on that step. Thanks. Where did you get the idea of noble purpose? Because it seems so obvious when we talk about it, yet I I believe that what it is called in a lesser way is kind of alignment, being aligned with your values. How did you elevate that phrase into something that's become so significant and develop such a, a rich body of work around it? Well, it started with a research study that I did for a big biotech firm. My team and I went in, the biotech firm wanted us to study their sales team. And in this case, I will uh, leave the firm unnamed, but the VP of sales, guy coincidentally named Bill, said, what I wanna know is I wanna know what differentiates the top performers. And this was a big multinational biotech firm. They had thousands of salespeople all around the world. And he said, I know what, the differences from the mid-level performers to the and the poor performers. Like I can spot, we know what to do, the, the training, the product knowledge, the sales skills. He said, but what I want to know is I want to know what makes these top performers the top performers. Because he's, you know, the chief revenue officer, he's looking across this and he can see that some of these people clearly are the consistent top performers, presidents, club, whatever you want to call it. And so he said, I want to know why. So we went out in the field and we started studying the salespeople and we looked at how many calls did they make? What did they say to their customers? What was their background? And it was all in search of this elusive thing. What makes the top performers the top performers? And we were near the end of the study. I was with a representative in Phoenix, Arizona. It was hot as hell as it is in Phoenix. And we were sitting in her car. I was about to get out to schlep my way up to the airport in the you know, 110 degree heat. I was sitting there in the air conditioning. I just paused for a minute and I asked her a question that wasn't on our list of questions. And I said, what do you think about when you go on sales calls? And she said, well, I don't tell this to many people, but I always think about this one particular patient. She told me a story about standing in one of her doctor's offices. This grandmother looking woman came up to her, taps her on the shoulder and says, excuse me, miss, are you the representative for this drug? Sales rep says, yes. She had her name badge on. She said, well, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for giving me my life back because prior to taking this, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. And now that I've got your company's drug, I can get on a plane. I can fly across the country and visit my grandkids and get down the floor and play with them. So I want to thank you for giving me my life. And so the sales rep is telling me this story and she's getting really emotional. And I realized that this is 10 years ago when people weren't talking about this. And I realized she was alluding to something bigger and deeper. So got back on my plane, flew back to Atlanta, and I said, I'm going to go back to these interviews and see if I can find this sense of purpose. And I found it. 
in five, including her, total of five people. Lisa, five people out of what sample size? Five people out of about 50. Okay, thanks. So we'd gone and ridden with 50 people. And the interesting thing about this study is when we went out to work with these people and he was saying, see if you can figure out who the top performers are, what's interesting is this was a blind study. And so some of the people we were with were top performers and some were average performers. None were poor performers, just top people and average people. And the interesting thing is we didn't know who was who. It was blind so that we could see if we could identify what makes these top performers. So we get to the end of the study I'm with the big execs from the biotech company, Bill, chief revenue officer, sitting at the head of the table. He says, well, what'd you learn? And who do you think our top people are? And I had found these five people that alluded to this sense of purpose in the interviews. One guy said, oh, I just love sharing the science. Another guy said, you know, my father was a doctor. I just want to make the doctor's life easier. And so they'd all in some way alluded to this sense of higher purpose. And so I say, well, I think these are your top five people. And I was 100% right. They were the top five people in the country. And so now they're all looking at me like, oh, my gosh, she's, you know, some kind of crazy psychic. How did she figure this out? And they said, well, how did you know? And I said, well, these people had a different mental talk track. They all had this sense of higher purpose. And that was the defining thing. That's something where you look back on it and say, my gosh, how that stands out. Yet it's something that we really can embrace, you know, in the same way of thinking what our higher purposes. It reminds me of somebody who recently passed away. I don't know if you know the story of the head of the state-owned electric utility in South Africa, Ian McRae. I don't. He was somebody who spoke about, he didn't write a lot about it, but he was. He spoke about how he believed that electricity could transform lives through better agricultural technology, also known as farming equipment, closer community relationships, to indoor lighting to read. He's someone who really believed in this at a larger, deeper level, rather than just we're in a utility to provide electricity and the fewer customer complaints, the better. He actually risked legal sanctions and fines and a lot of threats by providing electricity to segregated communities during the nation's apartheid. And he was, why I like him so much is because of the label that I give to him. He was a real power to the people kind of leader. He wanted to bring electric power to the people so that they could transform their lives. And he was willing to risk a lot of social pressure as well as legal pressure to do so because he believed in that larger mission this, in a similar way to that sales rep for the pharmaceutical company who always thought of the grandmother who came up to her in the hospital and thanked her for giving her life back. That's right. The different mental talk track. And what you've just spotted there is something really important that I want to tease out for leaders who are listening to this call. The metrics, the KPIs that we look at, how much revenue did you produce? What's your production times? All those things, those matter, but they are the result of the beliefs and behaviors of your people. And so what happened with that big biotech company is I've said, these are the top five people. And they say, how did you know? And I say, well, they have a different belief system. That was 10 years ago. And when I described it, it sounded a little bit fuzzy. It took me a solid decade to figure out that you can actually seed this belief system into a company in, in not a manipulative way, in a very authentic way. And there's some techniques that you can use to bring that to life in your team, especially your sales team, because what we found is 
the rest of the salespeople in this company of the across the 50 that we worked with, then only five were top performers. The five had this different mental talk track. The rest of the people were nice people. They were trying to do a good job, but they were thinking, I've got to share this drug data. I've got to hit my numbers. I've got to make this many calls. And those were good things. They were good, solid performers. But these top five were different. They were thinking, oh my gosh, I'm here to make a difference. So then when they did things like hit their call targets, shared information, it all had more oomph to it and a greater Mm -hmm. sense of purpose. I watched their sales calls and you could not put your finger specifically on why they were different because they shared the same drug information. They made about the same number of calls, but they were so much more engaging so much more emotionally engaging. Their customers shared so much more information because these top sellers, what we call now noble purpose sellers, their orientation was not towards self. It was towards other. It was towards improving life for customers. And so it took a full decade to figure out how like the leader that you just mentioned, taking a belief system like that and scaling it across an entire organization, but it can be done. And the data tells us when you do it well, you outperform the market. In fact, some research from Jim Stengel, who's an XP&G person, says you outperform the market by 350% when you have a purpose bigger than money. Can you talk about an example of maybe client work that you've engaged in where they've said, we want to have a noble purpose shared among our sales team and perhaps even beyond that? What's an example of where a company was starting at and what were some of the the symptoms that they were experiencing and what were some of the changes that you introduced and how did that make a difference? What was the before and after sort of observations? So absolutely, I can give you a very specific example and it was on the cover of American Banker last year. This is Atlantic Capital Bank, which is a commercial bank headquartered in Atlanta. The CEO is a guy named Doug Williams, and I'm sharing this with their full permission. This is one of the stories in the book. And like I said, it made front page of American Banker magazine. So Atlantic Capital had about 200, has about 250 employees. And like I said, they're in the commercial space. And they were in a spot where they were a really good bank. They were good to work for. They had a good list of customers. But the CEO wanted to take it to the next level. CEO, Doug Williams, he wanted to be differentiated and he wanted to stand out in the space. And one of the things that he said to me when we first started talking about this idea of noble purpose, he says, well, I'm a banker. So numbers are my lingua franca. What that means is when I talk to my people, what I talk to them about is numbers because I'm a banker. That's what I was trained on. And he said, I believe that a bank does serve a higher purpose. I believe that we really do something for our customers and the community. And I believe that when we do it well, we make a difference. So Doug said, I want to bring that to life. So we worked with the senior leadership team. And one of the first things we did was identify their points of competitive differentiation and identify how they did, in fact, make a difference to their customers. And using that information and some employee interviews, we settled on what we call their noble purpose, which is we fuel prosperity. Well, that became the game changer because instead of saying we're a bank here to hit these quarterly targets, they said, what we do, our North Star is we fuel prosperity. That means every customer we talk to, we have to figure out 
what does prosperity mean to them and how can we fuel it for them? It seems really simple and in concept it is, but it's not always our instinct because the instinct of a banker, just like many people, is to walk in and talk about, we've got these loans, we've got this, we've got that. And instead they flip the whole thing. So flash forward, 12 months later, they have gone from being a good place to work where they have been voted best place to work by their employees. Doug Williams is on the cover of American Banker for the dramatic results that they achieved. They are now completely differentiated in the market and their earnings are up 40%. An important thing as a leader to understand is they made a lot more money and the way that they did it was they focused on something bigger than money. The language and the strategy of the leadership team is the leading indicator that drives the lagging indicator, which is the money. Oh, that's a terrific point, Lisa. I also think that it, it has so many other measurable benefits to everyone listening and thinking about ways to attract better talent and retain better talent, being able to have people feel more satisfied with the work that they do and build closer relationships and collaborate more effectively when you know that everyone in this organization shares that noble purpose or at least has awareness of it because I imagine that there are people who embrace it to a greater degree than others. Is that what you found? Yeah. So we'll go back to the example of Atlantic Capital Bank. They had made an acquisition, as a lot of organizations do. There wasn't real alignment. It wasn't working out. They actually made a decision to sell that. And they made the decision very quickly because they were able to use that noble purpose, We Feel Prosperity, as one of their lenses for decision-making. So when you're sitting there, a decision like a big decision to sell off this acquisition or a small decision in terms of what to, you know, how do we want to change our software? When you have the lens of my job here is to fuel the customer's prosperity, then I ask myself, would this be better for customers or worse for customers? Is this the best way to help customers? Is there a more efficient way to help customers? And, and not to be confused, fueling prosperity, which is their noble purpose, isn't about giving away the store. It is about really adding value to customers in a way that differentiates you. Because you you mentioned two really important things there. One is the employee experience. Once we get beyond food and shelter, human beings have two fundamental needs. We want belonging and we want significance. We want to make a difference. We want to know that our work counts. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves and know that our contribution matters. And when you put a stake in the ground to say we are more than just a money-making machine, we're actually doing meaningful work, people lean into that. They are attracting people from all kinds of other industries who want to come work for this differentiated bank. Then, Bill, you also said cooperation. So often we have turf wars in organizations, not because people are bad people, but because I've got my metric and you've got your metric. And I don't believe you care about my metric. And truth be told, I probably don't care about yours. But instead, if we're all here to fuel prosperity for the customers, everything changes. And imagine that when there are those types of disputes that they could be trained or encouraged to Mm -hmm. ask themselves the larger question, wait a second, I'm looking to increase or decrease the, the time of resolution and you're looking to increase customer satisfaction. Which way is going to help us fuel their prosperity? And then they could both step back and get on the same page from that perspective using that common metric for success. That's exactly right. We had another client that we worked with that put their purpose as a stake in the ground. And what happened was they went through their list, a much bigger company with thousands of employees, and they went through their list of all their projects. 
And they eliminated half of them because they weren't in alignment with their purpose. And so consequently, they were able to deploy their resources towards the high value products that would have a positive impact on customers. I'm going to call that out just to remind everyone listening that eliminating projects, processes, or priorities that aren't functioning to serve your purpose is a sign of a winning organization and a growing organization because it actually takes courage to say, you know what, this is no longer a priority. This is not bringing us closer to what our purpose is rather than staying doggedly committed to something that simply drains your resources and perhaps even your morale. Lisa, let me ask you, I I imagine that you're getting quite a number of calls during the pandemic from leaders asking and seeking your guidance because it's affected sales. What's an example of a company that's not just turn things around, but been able to use the pandemic in order to embrace a larger purpose or make a bigger contribution than they were previously. Because many companies are just thinking of ways to survive. And the attitude with which you approach your turnaround, with which you approach your pivot, makes such a big difference. I bet you've got examples from people who have come to you and you've been able to help them approach things from a perspective of a noble purpose. Absolutely. And so as you think about sales, so I'm going to put a frame on this first. What you have to know if you were in the business of selling anything is two fundamental things have changed and they've changed forever. One is the way customers perceive your salespeople. There is a growing chorus of customers saying, are you here to close me? Are you actually here to help me? Because once you stripped away all of those in-person niceties of walking in and shaking hands and smiling and all that stuff, once all that was stripped away and everything was left to either an email or a Zoom call, it became really obvious what the intention of your salespeople were. So that's one thing that's happened is customers are demanding a new level of authenticity and noble intent. The second thing that happened to sales when everybody went home and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this call either are in this situation themselves or their people are in it, is now you don't have the bullpen of salespeople, of 20 salespeople or two salespeople that are feeding off each other. You've got somebody who's gone home who's sharing the kitchen table with their kids. And if you can't win the hearts and minds of your people to tell them that what we're doing matters here, they're never going to win the hearts and minds of customers. And so, so I'm going to tell you a story about a client of ours, but I'd be curious as to your take on that first bill that the salespeople have changed dramatically in terms of their need to stay engaged and the customers have changed dramatically. Lisa, I've found that to be true as well, especially what I look at as the receptivity of people. They have what I call their defense shields up if they hear that someone's coming to sell or refulfill an order because companies are understandably cautious about making investments or unnecessary expenditures during the pandemic when there's so many factors that are uncertain. Yet when somebody's calling to talk and find out how they could help them, how they could make connections, how they can offer assistance beyond just the transaction, it's an opportunity that a lot of people who I know and clients of ours are deepening their relationships and they won't be forgotten when the pandemic lifts because of these types of calls. That's exactly right. And so I'll give you an example of a company that we are working with that we're just recently working with. They are a very large uh, water company and they have divisions all over the world. And the CEO, 
the guy, wow, this is the day of bills. <laughs> the CEO's name is Bill. And he reached out to us, he and his HR lead, one by the name of Kathy. And what they said was, so they've got thousands of people all over the world. They've got eight different companies that are all do something to do with water and they're trying to bring them all together. And so their challenge was, how do we create a unifying rallying cry for all of these disparate businesses? We can't meet, we can't do it in person, and we need something that keeps everyone focused on our customers and something that brings people together. Because again, our salespeople are sitting at the kitchen table trying to help their kid with homework and make sales calls. They got to be pretty clear on why they're here. And so we're just in the middle of this right now. And we, in fact, this morning I had a launch meeting with one of the divisions and we landed on this purpose around we propel our customers' highest aspirations. And one of the reasons why that was so important to them was if you've got manufacturing, if you've got product development, if you've got, you know, salespeople, you've got all of these people, you've got finance people, all of these people, when they went to go work off on their own, they are more likely going to be siloed on their function because that's what happens to people. And so what they wanted to do was bring everyone together And when one of the things that people often think is that if you sell with noble purpose, that it's about pleasing customers, it's actually not. It's about improving customers. And the difference there is pretty dramatic. And so they've been able to rally hundreds of people all over the world, all different languages around the idea that we're not just here to please customers, but we're actually propelling their highest aspirations. We're actually improving our customers in measurable ways. It takes a conversation from reactive to very proactive and more strategic. So what's really interesting is how personalized each of these noble purposes are to each company. That's right. And it's not something where you could just say, oh, hey, there's one, propel highest aspirations. I think we'll use that. It really has to develop organically from the type of relationships and industry and people who are part of that company now. Isn't that true? That's exactly right. And so one of the things that we did in the new book, Selling with Noble Purpose, the new edition, is we walk you through the process of finding your own noble purpose. So I wrote Selling with Noble Purpose after I had the epiphany with the biotech company and we started implementing this methodology with a number of companies. So the first book did very well and it really upended some of the conversations about sales to reframe around this noble purpose. And the reason we just did a second edition is quite candidly, we've learned a lot. We've implemented this with over 25 companies and so many of them have, you know, I mentioned the bank had, you know, revenues or earnings were up 40%. Hootsuite, their revenue went up 200% during the time that we worked with them. And we've had a number of other companies win these best place to work awards, win their market, go from a number three player to a number one. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to capture exactly how they did that. So that the reader, whether they're leading a team of 10,000 or it's themselves and a part-timer, whatever it is, you can follow this methodology. You can find your noble purpose. And the book describes exactly how to find it. And then you can execute against it in a way that will differentiate you. Lisa, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? 
I'm ready for the lightning round. All right. So earlier I asked you about a person who was influential and inspiring to you growing up. When you were a teenager, what song did you find inspiring? Oh, Dancing Queen. Young and Sweet, Only 17, Dancing Queen. That was me. It's still me. Lisa, what's your noble purpose, both personally and for your company? Our noble purpose as a company is we help leaders drive revenue and do work that makes them proud because we want to help leaders combine making money and making a difference. And because I own the company, that's also my personal noble purpose. I wake up every day excited about helping people make a difference and make money at the same time. And lately, what's been the most effective way that you get the word out about your mission, your noble purpose each week? So I do a LinkedIn Live every Friday at 1.30. And then the other thing is talking about the book. We find that when people read the book, we had a couple of early copies go out. When people read the book, it really gives them a template and a way to talk about these things. Because what we're doing is a new language for talking about your business. What would you say is the best $100 purchase or so you've made in the last six months? I spent two bucks on this great duct tape that I was able to use to tape up my water ski where it was starting to break. And that was the best money I ever spent. That was the best tape ever. When you think back over the last year, what would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Shockingly, I stopped drinking. I was never a huge drinker, but a couple glasses of wine at night, a couple drinks on the weekend, and I stopped and I lost weight and some of my lifelong troubles with my stomach went away and it became sort of a tip of the spear thing where I got a whole lot healthier and that's brought me a lot of joy. I just think that's so great to reflect on and acknowledge. Yeah. So Lisa, as we think about selling with noble purpose and the people who are listening to this, who are eager to implement it and engage with it, what's the biggest mistake that companies make about selling with noble purpose that you'd like to clarify here for people listening? The biggest mistake is assuming that it takes the money off the table and that it's all about social good and social responsibility. What we found in our study is these noble purpose companies are good corporate citizens, but the heart of selling with noble purpose is not around just what you give to the community. It is around the value that you provide to your customer. So this isn't some corporate social responsibility thing that sits on the side. Selling a noble purpose sits at the center of your commercial model. And it is the thing that enables you to drive innovation, to drive employee engagement, to drive customer engagement. And those things have a very high commercial value. Well, Lisa, you've shared so many great ideas with us on my quest for the best. I wanna thank you so much Starting off with talking about how your dad would come home enthusing about how his work made a difference and connecting those points, not just to what advanced the business objectives, but how it really made an impact. Thanks for sharing the false dichotomy between making money and making a difference, because you can do it both, just like you've expressed and shared in so many of the examples, like the one we talked about with originally the biotech research study that you did that really unlocked this for you. And by asking the question that VP of sales asked what differentiates the top performers, he was really interested 
in finding out what made the difference. And you were able to identify five of those 50 top performers out of that big mix. And when you did, it really showed that you had identified something that really made a difference. I want to thank you for talking about how coming up with a noble purpose is really an organic process. And even uh, companies like Atlanta Capital and Doug Williams, the CEO who was uh, featured on the cover of American Banker Magazine, learned to use a noble purpose in order to really engage his staff and do more business and make a bigger difference in his community because he realized that by sharing with people the idea that we fuel prosperity, it became a measure and a guidance for every decision that people make day in and day out. And I think that really impacts theirs as well as others' discretionary time. When there's you know maybe 15 minutes left before lunch or before the end of the day, people who think about how to fuel their prosperity are going to try to make one or two more calls rather than just say, oh, well, let's put a, you know, uh, let's stop here for now and pick it up after lunch. I think that you talked about the importance of having a different belief system and how important that is because it's not just about the metrics. It's about what you believe and what actions you take as a result of that belief. And I loved when you talked about having a noble purpose isn't just about pleasing others. It's about focusing on their improvement, which is sometimes not comfortable, but it really does make their lives better. So Lisa McLeod, for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. It's been an absolute pleasure, Bill. Hey, Lisa, before we say goodbye for now, where can people find out more about you and your work online? Just Google Selling with Noble Purpose and we will pop up. For everyone listening, not only can you find out more information on Lisa's website, but we're going to link to it in the show notes so you can find all of her social media contacts and channels and stay up to date with what's going on with Selling with Noble Purpose. Lisa McLeod, author of Selling with Noble Purpose, Thank you so much again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. It has been such a pleasure, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.